At Urban Farm Podcast, we are all about education, and April is Foliar Feeding Month. Have you heard of it? It is a super simple application of spraying liquid organic fertilizer on your trees and garden plants. The leaves, branches, and trunks are incredible at absorbing nutrients. And if your soil isn't great or your pH is off, foliar feeding is a quick and long-lasting fix to get your plants the nutrients they need. Want to learn more? Join us for our free online webinar on how to apply this amazing process to your gardens and fruit trees. Visit urbanfarm.org to sign up. That's urbanfarm.org. Decades ago, I started growing food in my front and backyard, and I realized that my mission in life is to inspire and empower others to grow their own nutrient-dense, healthy, organic food. Because of this, a lot of people have come to me with their gardening questions over the years, and that got me thinking, what if we put together a community that would help budding gardeners blossom? So I finally made the idea a reality with my Urban Farm U member program. Each month, your membership includes three live online events, a monthly class, a chit-chat with an expert, and a monthly coaching session, plus access to the experts on our member page and a significant discount on our signature courses. I'm deeply committed to transforming our global food system, and I do this by empowering you to grow your own food. The Urban Farm Membership Program is a simple way to get going. Please join me in transforming your food system today. To learn more, go to urbanfarmmembership.org or text membership to 33444. That's urbanfarmmembership.org or text membership to 33444. You're listening to the Urban Farm Podcast, your partner in the Grow Your Own Food Revolution. Whether you've just been introduced to urban farming or you're a lifelong advocate, we're sure you'll leave feeling more informed, equipped, and empowered to dig deeper into the soil of your local food economy. With you every step of the way, here's your host, Greg Peterson. Today on the Urban Farm Podcast, we have Tim Diebel to talk about his experience with his path from pastor to farmer. Tim grew up in West Texas, the younger son of a local church pastor and his Christian educator wife. After graduating from Texas Christian University in Fort Worth, Texas, with a BFA in speech communications, he went on to seminary, graduating with a Master of Divinity degree. After graduating, he served churches in Texas communities in Houston, Athens, and Lufkin, And then he moved to a historic urban congregation adjacent to Drake University in Iowa. During the course of that 19-year ministry, Tim became captivated by the questions of food, our global food system, and the need for a strengthened circle of memory around how to grow food on simpler terms. So at the age of 55, he quit his job, and with his wife, he moved to a 10-acre farmstead they've named Taproot Garden, located south of Des Moines, where they cultivate a large garden and raise laying hens, an enterprise he refers to as a writing project with an outdoor classroom. Welcome to the show today, Tim. It is a thrill to get to be with you today. Thanks. Well, thank you. So I shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks for us and share more about the path you took to get where you're at now? 
Well, as as you've discerned, I, I've pretty much been a city boy all my life, mm -hmm. and and then something kind of weird happened. Well, a couple of things converged uh, uh, several years ago, and and one of those was sort of a an, an aborted vacation. Uh, we'd made plans, taken time off from work, uh -huh. made res made reservations, and then um, Lori's dad. Uh, had a heart attack. My mm -hmm. wife's father had a heart attack, and surgery was scheduled. We yeah. canceled our plans, made ready to gather with the family uh, in Minneapolis, where the surgery was going to be. Uh -huh. And then some ancillary health problems uh, occurred with him, and the surgery got postponed for a couple of weeks. And so, you know, there we were, time on our hands, mm -hmm. nowhere to go. <laughs> and so we, in desperation, conceived of a kind of clandestine staycation, and camped out in the lower level of our town home so that no one would know that we were home and we just started catching up on books that had stacked up. Uh -huh. And at the top of my pile was Barbara Kingsolver's Animal Vegetable Miracle. And I started making my way through that and, and just got engrossed. And yeah. by the time it was over, read through the resource information at the back of the book, uh -huh. tracked down a nearby CSA and went out for a visit. Wow. And, uh, and and the farmer and his wife were pretty unusual in that world and uh, and over a relationship that extended uh, for several years began to teach us a lot about food on different terms and the importance of pure food. Uh -huh. and, and I think something just kind of took root in us. And, Pun intended. And then, yeah. <laughs> and then converging with that was uh -huh. uh, this sort of larger reality about uh, the the, the life that my wife and I led at the time. She was an educational administrator in a, a suburban school district mm -hmm. and had a really crammed schedule. And my work as a local church pastor kind of had the same sort of hours. They were very different pursuits in right. some ways, but we would both leave very early in the morning and usually get back at nine or 10 o'clock at night. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and on those rare occasions when we did overlap at home, we really didn't want to go out. And right. so, so we sort of hit upon cooking as a date night activity. Oh, yes, I know that one. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, one thing led to another. The more we learned about cooking, the more we began to be curious about the food we were using. And that led to a curiosity about where food comes from. And, and we're both academically minded and uh, just started doing a lot of research and the more I learned about the food system that mm. uh, that sustains us the more I learned how energy intensive oh, that system gosh, yes. is you know how um, predicated the entire system is on plentifully available and, and cheap and, and cheap energy yeah. and it occur occurred to me that one or both of those, one of these days, was no longer going to be the case. Mm -hmm. And what would happen then, I wondered. And the only answer I could come up with was that I was going to get hungry. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. A little known, a little known fact that's it's actually more widely known now is that we, in in urban areas in really in the world, there's a three day food supply. Hmm. That's it. Wow. That's a problem. Well, and so I've. I really felt like somebody better be remembering how to grow food on different terms. Yeah, and and something just sort of hatched in my inner world about needing to be a part of that circle of memory. And the yeah. problem was, I didn't know anything about it, and I'd never done it before. And 
And so I, I didn't have anything to remember. I, I, I only had something to learn. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so one thing led to another. And before long, I quit my job and we moved out to an acreage outside of town so that I could learn how to grow food. Yeah. I really like the words you used in the bio. It says strengthening, strengthened circle of memory around how to grow food. Say more, say more about why you choose those particular words. There are people, thankfully, who know how to do that uh-huh. uh, on, on sort of old fashioned, simple terms. You know, the, the, the more current words would be sustainably mm-hmm. or regeneratively yes. or organically and the like. But really, it is the way our great grandparents raised food with the resources at hand and fed their families and generations that way. And so there is that circle of memory, but Mm. I look around and, you know, I have two adult kids. They don't do this. I have lots of friends. None of them do this. And, and so it seems to me in some ways, a fragile circle of memory that I wanted to strengthen uh, with any kind of practice and knowledge and, and skill that I could gain and add to it. Nice. Nice. Uh, That, the fra- your phraseology behind that is it's it's powerful hmm. it's powerful so at the age of 55 you <laughs> quit your job of decades and moved to a 10 acre you call it a farmstead and i love that you named it tell us the <laughs> name of your farmstead it's called taproot garden mm-hmm. and i don't really know where that came from other than the atmosphere but we were here actually, uh-huh. and uh, and more and more, what it felt to me like we were doing was driving down some kind of anchoring route. Mm. And uh, as I began to read about tap roots, carrots, and, and the like, mm-hmm. uh, I, what I learned is you know it drives down this centering, anchoring, deep uh, route mm-hmm. from from which and off of which everything else grows. And I just felt like what we were doing out here was trying to gain some kind of fresh and deep grounding for direction and nourishment and the like. Got it. So pastor to farmer, that's, that's an evolution per se. So did you, did you see it changing careers, different careers, or was it an evolution for you? No, initially it felt like a major change. It really felt like a 90 degree turn. I found myself sort of feeling guilty at work because the only thing I thought about was (laughs) so food business. And that's not really what I was getting paid to do. Right. Uh, And so it really required, it seemed to me to have integrity, but also to just spend full time doing what I was needing to do. It felt like it needed, I needed to get away from this one thing and, and, Mm -hmm. and shift gears to another we're now five years into this, and I don't look at it nearly as dramatic as I did in those early days. Yeah. It looks, it feels significantly more like uh, an incremental uh, evolution rather than a radical shift. Got it. And it and it feels to me in our conversation that it was an uh, one that was fairly logical and easy for you. Well, it, it was terrifying because. Again, first of all, I'd never done anything like it before. And uh-huh. so in that sense, it wasn't easy. I remember the first time 
I determined to jump off the high diving board. I climbed up and immediately climbed back down because oh, yes. I couldn't bear the thought of jumping down. But yeah. uh, and it, so it had that feel about it, frankly. But uh, my wife was going to continue to work and did until two years ago. She retired as well, and and so there was mm, a safety net, if you will. And we had been working to rearrange our life in many ways financially so that we didn't have debt other than housing and we you know we were at a place where it was risky but it wasn't terribly risky mm -hmm. right <laughs> so it, you know it worked uh, we yeah. we made the shift and uh, and I stayed home and Lori went to work and and uh, and now that's even better because she's really here full-time joining me in the, nice. in the undertaking isn't that wonderful yeah, I, very much. I, I absolutely love that. But my, my partner's here, not full time with me, but she's a yoga teacher. And and so she's here every day and we cook mm -hmm. dinner every night together. So I, 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 I'm on board with you on that. It's beautiful. There's come to be something magical about yeah. uh, mid-afternoon thinking, what are we going to have for dinner? Yep. And and just going to, the, to the, the freezer or to the cabinet or whatever. And it's almost all there. Yeah, yeah. Well, and that and Kari Spencer, one of my my business partner, uh, and she teaches our Growing Food the Basics course at Urban Farm U with me. Uh, we have an entire week uh, on basically getting prepared for what happens when the crop arrives. So it sounds to me like you know all of a sudden you have two hundred pounds of tomatoes. What kind of structures do you have in place for when the crop arrives? Yeah, and that was acute this summer because uh, <laughs> yep, <laughs> we've been shockingly successful the last couple of years uh, in the greenhouse seeding tomatoes and and uh, peppers and and so forth. We made a major shift a couple of years ago, uh, learning about soil blocking. You familiar with soil blocking? No, tell me. Well, I've been from the beginning of this enterprise, just you know, with those little plastic seed cell trays that I grew to despise, you know, filling them with potting soil and then right. uh, sticking a seed in there and stuff. Uh, and we had yes. about a 50% germination rate yep. or at best maybe, and it was terrible. And uh, began reading in different places uh, about this process. I think Elliot Coleman developed it of using uh, a tool to create a little block of block, potting yes. soil uh, that you actually put the seed in. And, and yeah. this, in, it's kind of a self-contained little matrix that you then put the whole thing in, in the, yeah. you transplant that whole thing in the garden. Well, we, we bought the tool, we started making those, and we went from about a 45 to 50% germination rate to about a 95% germination rate. Wow. And and the, the problem with that is uh, we'd sort of gotten into the habit of assuming that only half of the stuff we planted, uh, we sowed in the greenhouse was going to materialize. Yep. And so this spring, for example, the tomatoes, which had by that time become children, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, that I couldn't bear to throw away ended up mostly in the garden, uh, namely 175 tomato plants. Oh. Because, you know, oh, here's there's room for one more over yep. here. It's, and so for the better part of August, it was about 50 pounds of tomatoes a day that we were <laughs> bringing in that needed a home. And right. so uh, when we moved out here, some friends gifted us with a food dehydrator. Nice. And so we started using that and that got overwhelmed very quickly. So then we subsequently 
purchased a second one of those. And so mm -hmm. both of those were firing on all cylinders nonstop. And, and we can a lot of things and freeze a lot of things and, and develop strategies for, you know, I've just, I, we discovered that a great strategy for using tomatoes is to do things like tomato sauce and paste because you start out with a truckload of tomatoes and wind up with a tablespoon of product. Exactly. So, so you can, you know, you can make good use of them that way. Right. So, so we have a number of freezers. We have uh, a number of shelves full of canned goods. We have, you know, those kind of typical mm -hmm. strategies for securing the harvest. And this, this year we, I can't say we emptied the freezer by the time we were ready to put the new crop in, but we, we did a very good job of yeah. making our way through. Fantastic. Have you ever done, done anything in the realm of CSA or sharing with other people in <laughs> harvest? Tell me about that. Well, we have, we have not done a CSA, although we share plenty. Uh, we sell eggs. We have uh, thirty laying hens, nice. and uh, and and so that's our economic enterprise. But mostly, that's just an effort to try to offset the cost of, the, of feed. the feed. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but but we we were pretty clear when we moved out here, and have intensified the clarity since then that we didn't move out here really to start a business. We really moved out here to learn how to do this and to find ways to communicate. And so our primary sharing, if you will, uh -huh. is is the experience, the place, and some insights along the way. Yeah. My, my ultimate ambition really is to uh, write about this in some book form. And so I have from the beginning kind of described this as a writing project with an outdoor classroom. And so, uh, yeah. and so I try to plug away with that. Uh, and to the extent that we're able, we share some food as well. But, uh, but our, our main intent at sharing is not as a business or as, as a charity, but right. really as a, as a knowledge base yeah. and experience, experience base really. Yeah. And so one of the things we do, for example, is uh, in conjunction with a local uh, uh, counseling center here mm -hmm. in town that works with not only a, a wide range of individuals, but congregations and clergy, is we have a clergy renewal program that meets once a month through the year. And uh, people who register sign up for a year and they come out from eight to four, one day a month. And part of that day is getting hands dirty in the garden oh, and in the chicken yard. Nice. And part of that day, a couple hours is spent in personal retreat time, walking trails, uh, yep. sitting on benches, journaling, doing whatever. And part of the day is spent in facilitated group conversation around a reading program that we, we do. Uh, so for example, currently uh, we're reading into, uh, the book, the third plate by, uh, Chef uh, Dan, I'm just blanking right now, but Stone Barns in New York, mm -hmm. Blue Hill at Stone Barns. Dan Barber is his name. Oh, Dan Barber, yes, of course. And and so it's really quite fascinating to use that book as a lens, oh, yes. and the and and the uh, the work of the morning in the garden to then talk about what are the insights and the analogs that mm. that brings to religious life, congregational life, et cetera. And yeah. so 
we have viewed that to be a, a kind of a really amazingly transformative process of connecting uh, agriculture, uh, nature, and, and, and those folks in full-time ministry in a creative way. So. Yeah. You know what I love about what you just said? Hmm. You are literally going out and planting the seeds for other people to we hope so. do this. Yeah. Wow. And as you can imagine, that's kind of, that's my mission in life too, is how can we get, how can we get these seeds planted so that everybody knows how to do it? We had a, a great experience just a, a few weeks ago, uh -huh. a, a, a group of about 10 uh, kids, I would say they're third or fifth grade primarily came, came over to visit and we were showing them around and we stopped by the chicken yard. Well, we have a, a main chicken yard that has, it's about a quarter of an acre surrounded oh, by nice. one, one of those web fence, electric fence kind of things where we have two main coops in there and that's the main flock in there. And then we have a separate smaller uh, confine that is where we call it the annex, but it's where the younger chickens that we get or spend time before they're big enough to right. uh, join the group. One of them kept getting out. One of these young chickens kept getting out. And we, <laughs> yes, they will do that. Yeah, we kept studying and watching and never could figure out how this chicken was getting out, mm -hmm. but five or six times a day was accomplishing it. And so <laughs> we're telling this group of kids about this problem that we're having, and they're hold on, very fast. They solved it. Well, they tried. They, they didn't quite get there, but they were fascinated. They, they surveyed every inch of the fence. They looked everywhere they could and they made hypotheses about how it was doing. Well, I turn around, I'm gonna walk over toward the garden and show them the garden and I, I realize no one's going with me. Right. <laughs> and so I turn, I turn around and they're all like at a, in bleachers at a football game, just camped out beside this little enclosure watching these chickens because they're bound and determined. To, out. Yeah. To, to watch how that's happening. And I come over and I start to say something and they all shush me because they're watching very intent and they don't want to bother <laughs> the chickens. Well, what I find really cool about that is they were absolutely engrossed yeah. in the experience of what was happening mm -hmm. and, the, and problem solving and, and recognizing the importance of predators and, uh, and, and what can happen if this small little chicken keeps making the mistake of getting out. And, well, I love that. I mean, that's those kinds of moments. We feel like we're doing something worthwhile being out here. Yeah, I have found that the young young people they there's something about this that when we connect in with them, it's magical. It is. Yeah. Yeah. Is. So, did you figure out how the chicken was getting out? <laughs> No, and there is a sad end to that story, not because the chicken got out, but because a hawk got in, and that very chicken, who at that point was where she was supposed to be, uh, fell victim to a chicken hawk. Uh, so before we ever figured out what happened, but that prompted us to invest in a monumental net that now goes yep. over the entire enclosure over yeah. there that's a 50 foot by 50 foot net that wow. goes uh, from over the small little coop that they live in all the way draped down the sides of the fence so mm -hmm. hopefully that won't happen again oh good yeah that's you know when we take on uh chicken children we have them here at the urban farm uh, you know, we have to make sure that they're safe. And we, we actually recently lost 10 of ours to a bobcat 
Oh my! Right in the middle of Phoenix. So it had, you know, it never happened. So it, you know, we we also invested in a great big net, um, <laughs> and now have a much more secure, uh, you know, chicken yard. So for those of you out there listening, uh, even if you do live in the sixth biggest city in the country in the U.S., which is Phoenix, Arizona, uh, right in the middle of it, you need to protect your chick, protect your hens. Nature is nature. Yep, exactly, exactly. So I want to I want to walk through uh, your property, and and I I just arrived in my car, and I got out of my car, and you walk up and greet me, and we're standing there looking at ten acres. What do you fill ten acres with? Tell us about it. Mm-hmm. So you will drive in from the south. And you'll be looking north, uh-huh. and all, and the the house then sits on the, uh, generally speaking, on the south edge of the property. And mm-hmm. so, moving behind the house, to the uh, west of the house, we built a thirty foot in diameter uh, limestone lined labyrinth. Oh, and nice. <laughs> and so it's there for people to walk, mm-hmm. and uh, as a kind of a landmark setting and moving on past that uh, you come eventually to the garden and the garden is about a quarter of an acre divided into four sections and uh, straight across the yard to the east of that is the chicken yard and right behind now to the north of the chicken yard we built a uh, uh, solar sy- solar system that uh, it's, it's hooked to the grid but it by and large, provides all of our electrical needs for nice. the house. Uh-huh. It's, tw- it's 26 panels. Wow. Uh, and, and it's a ground-mounted system. And uh, so it, it, that's been a real wonderful addition to yeah. the property. Behind all of that, then, is about three and a half acres that we've put into uh, – it's in process of, of being restored as a native prairie grasses and pollinator wildflowers Ooh. Uh, that we are doing – along with the Department of Natural Resources and the Fish and Wildlife Service. Oh, nice. And behind that is about three acres of woods uh-huh. uh, that is generally largely un- unexplored. <laughs> wow. So it's pretty densely grown. Yeah, it's a great deer habitat, mm. uh, uh, among other things. But deer, and there are some bobcats back there. Mm-hmm. Uh, we we see foxes, we see lots of you know raccoons and oh, yeah. possums and the like. But that's sort of the general overlay of of the property. From time to time, there is a, a gentleman from the nearby town who keeps bees at the north end of our property. Oh, and nice! So it was one of those wonderful kind of uh, uh, serendipities when we were. Uh, in this initial process with uh, the prairie planning, uh, we received a, a seed list uh, from the seed purveyor, and I shared that with the beekeeper and asked if he had anything Ooh. particular that he thought we ought to augment that with or change. And he made some recommendations. I passed those along to the seed provider, and he happily made those adjustments, and that's what's planted out there. And it's this, this is now the third year of that development and they cautioned us to be uh, patient about that needing five or so years to really mature and 
And this year really has matured significantly over even last year. And so that continues to really be a fascination as much as anything. And we have trails around that and around the property that are through some trees and and so forth. And and so it's kind of, there's some really wonderful walking areas through around. Nice. Any fruit trees yet? We have about three dozen. Oh, wow. Uh, the first year that we moved out here, uh, my kids gave us six fruit trees, and we've added mm. to that some. And then the the following year, we play, of those, those are uh, pear, plum, apricot, and apple. Mm-hmm. And we've added some cherry. We've added some, uh, another dozen uh, apples of different varieties. Uh-huh. And then just this spring, we added six chestnuts, six hazelnuts, oh, wow. and, and six pawpaws. Uh-huh. And I think that's probably our orchard. <laughs> <laughs> that is a pretty epic orchard. That's going to produce a lot of food for you. So far, the, the apricots, the plums, and, and apples, we have, we, and we inherited a, a fairly mature apple tree and uh-huh. so uh, we're doing well so far this was the first year for apricots and they were in an abundance uh, we just last week harvested the plums in abundance and we're looking forward to the pears and the apples yeah i i i've had this realization i, I study what i call permaculture yes uh, what is what is called permaculture in the world and mm-hmm. and i study it and for like 25 years now and one of the things that i am continually excited with pleased with is the notion that in nature there is no lack in fact i tell people the only place that lack lives is between our ears absolutely and you know as i've looked back through albert howard's agricultural testament his notions of observation about how nature farms yeah uh, you know that what you just said is could have been i don't think he says it that way but it could have been straight out of his observations you know I nature never yeah i mean it's, it's beautiful yeah yeah so and it sounds like you're 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 experiencing that in spades with 50 pounds of tomatoes a day <laughs> <laughs> yeah you know and we have a pretty this year we uh, we tried an experiment with wheat oh we, nice we planted some hard red winter wheat last September uh-huh. in two of the sections of the garden. And so ultimately as about an eighth of an acre of wheat. Uh-huh. And I, I try to do things as simply as possible. And so it came time this June for the harvest. And right. so I bought a hand scythe and we harvested all this by hand. And <laughs> now we're learning our way through those ancient practices of uh, threshing and threshing. windowing. And, yeah. And that's a trip. But in the meantime, we're learning how to, uh, we, we bought some whole grain, obviously, uh, in addition to that, yeah. and a mill. And so we've been, for the last several months, practicing grinding grain into flour and uh, wow. making bread and mm-hmm. so forth. And really, again, trying to learn fundamentals about where this stuff comes right, from. And how to do it. How to do it. And it turns out it doesn't come in a plastic wrapper. <laughs> or from the grocery store, for that matter. <laughs> so this is a pretty significant change that you've gone through over the past, what, five years? 
Yeah. Yeah. What kind of challenges did you uh, bump up against or hurdles did you bump up against? Well, the first one was space. We were living in a townhome at the time, and our garden was our deck. Mm. And uh, I grew to hate pots pretty quickly because the deck wasn't that big, and before long, the stuff in the pots just took over any oh, space. Yeah. And It'll do that. Interestingly, I mentioned this uh, gentleman who has the CSA that, that we got acquainted with outside of town, and he he introduced me to a, a way of growing things that I continue to use. He had a major health event uh, about 10 years ago mm-hmm. and could no longer get down on the ground and, you know, till and do things like right. he had. And he was at that point confined to a wheelchair, and he... He drove about a three-foot length of rebar into the ground and then sleeved that with a four-inch diameter piece of PVC pipe and filled it with dirt and and planted seeds in the top of those vertical pipes that are now, like I said, about four, four feet off the ground. Oh, interesting. And he would just roll along. He has those lining his driveway and other places around uh, his property. And he just rolls along on his wheelchair and he can water and harvest. There's no weeding, obviously. Wow. Well, I was captivated by that. And so we employed a a variation of that on our deck. Uh, And so we had 20 of those just along the inside of our deck rail, Mm -hmm. which was an incredibly space efficient way of doing that. And when we moved out here to the to the farm, I brought those with me, and we put those on the on the deck we have now. And that's primarily our herb garden there on the deck. Oh yeah. And I would say it's perfect for for that. Now he does eggplant, he does peppers, he does all kinds of things, and I I do a a, a cherry tomato and a pepper out there that way. But mostly that's our herb garden. And it's just phenomenal. You know, as I say, it takes up virtually no space. It's easy to maintain. And and in fact, uh, a, a, a relative of a friend who lives in Indianapolis was planning a, a kind of a residential program for pregnant women. And she took that idea because a pregnant woman would right. have an easier time using that for, for growing vegetables than being able to bend over and deal with things on the ground and stuff. And so I think it's a really remarkable uh, wow. device. Now, we don't have rebar and that kind of stuff on our deck, obviously. We we uh, just have it zip-tied onto the deck rail, and I put a kind of a loose closure on the bottom so that it's not just open on the bottom but still has room to drain. It's fascinating in the fall when I'm uh, – putting those things to bed for the winter to pull out uh, the the spent plants and the root system is impressive. I mean, it's three to four foot deep yeah. down, down into that PVC pipe. Which, wow. Do you uh, happen to have any pictures of that? Sure. Cause we, I would love to get a picture from you on that so that we can put it on your, uh, your podcast page. Sure. Cool. Yeah, I'm, I'm a big advocate of it. It's a really wonderful wow. system. I want to try it. Yeah. I want to try it. So, so space was a big concern like that. Right. And, uh, certainly know-how was the other. Uh, uh, yeah. We didn't know what we were doing, and so we just started. And I guess I would say the third was this really was my idea. This was my passion. I came to feel like it was as powerful mm. of a calling as I had known coming to any congregation to serve uh-huh. in that way. And, and 
And so my wife went along with that. She was supportive of that, but it was really my my vision. It wasn't hers. And so, uh, you know, that was a challenge, I'll say, uh, to for, for her, probably more so than for me, mm-hmm. to, uh, to kind of belly up to this bar, so to speak, and, right. and make this shift. So but that's changed since she's retired and is able to kind of uh, embed Play with you every herself. Day. Yeah, yeah, embed herself here and make it much more her own as well as mine and to be uh, really a part and parcel of all that. So, yeah. And I would say with the knowledge part of that and the experience mm-hmm. part of that, uh, five years in on a scale of zero to 100, we're probably at two and a half, but we're, <laughs> it's better than we were. Yeah. Well, and hey, 50 pounds of tomatoes a day, baby. <laughs> <laughs> Something to be said for that. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm sitting here looking at this final question I want to ask you before we shift, and I, I haven't quite got it framed out yet, but yeah. it's really, how does, your, how does your ministry experience from the past inform your, you know, your earthworks and your gardening? How, how do you, have you made a connection there? So, yeah, and I haven't, I haven't completely stepped away from that because I find myself very part-time helping congregations that are in transition yeah. when they're they're looking for a new minister. They they have this kind of hole to fill, and so I'm, I'm doing that currently, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so there is a very present interplay between those two. That's not just my past and my present. I, I guess I would say. I think my ministry informs my earthwork with a deep and abiding sense of wonder and awe and reverence. I, mm-hmm. I really do think this is quite holy uh, uh, work. Yeah. Uh, there's something elemental about gardening that mm-hmm. touches the core of our existence and interconnectedness with all of creation. And I would say the flip of that is that gardening informs my ministry by uh, keeping me grounded in the myriad relationships that have to be fed and nourished and tended, yeah. or it all just disintegrates. Yeah. Um, it reminds me that ministry and congregational life aren't just ideas and programs and beliefs and dogmas and all that kind of stuff. It's a living thing, finally. Uh, uh, also capable of fruiting and being consumed by bugs and diseases of one kind or another, yeah. and, and farming connects my sense of ministry with the governing localness of expression, which is sort of another sideline, really. I got interested several years ago in this concept of terroir. Oh, yes. uh, French winemaking expression, taste of place. And and, and as you know, food growers are more and more picking up on that idea that something grown here will taste different than that same thing grown there Mm -hmm. because of all those different factors of microclimate and soil, et cetera. And that's really changed profoundly the way I look at congregations, too. Uh, hmm. I think churches increasingly behave like Applebee's restaurants with the same menus, the same decor, the same uniformly tasting dishes from coast to coast. Yeah. Uh, there really isn't any—I'm of the mind that there really isn't any such thing, finally, as church. There's only 
a congregation in this place that will necessarily be and express itself differently from one in that place on the other side of town or another part of the country. And to me, that's profoundly agricultural at first. And so respecting place and unique characteristics of soil and climate, et cetera, in one locale have as much to do with being church, I think, as being as growing food. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Beautifully said. So I'm going to shift on you, and I'd like for you to talk about a time you failed, how you overcame that failure, and what you might have learned from it. (laughs) Well, you know, failure, uh, mostly what I've done out here so far could be considered failure, but I I guess I would say intellectual or or philosophically, when I first started trying to grow food, I naively assumed that agriculture was circular. Uh, I knew there would be lots to learn, but you know, once you get the hang of it, you mm-hmm. just keep do- keep doing it every year, right? Oh, That's right. what I thought. Yeah. Well, what I've learned is that, <laughs> well, knowledge certainly is cumulative, but it, really, no two years are quite the same. Right. And so, that first year out here of planting a garden, we experienced a long summer of drought mm. during which, you know, uh-huh. I thought my hand was permanently going to take the shape of the garden hose that I seemed <laughs> just constantly holding. Uh, and so I was ready the second year with drip tape irrigation, and I got all that laid out just in time for the torrential rains that would intermittently <laughs> continue all through that summer. Mm-hmm. And, you know, last year the greens exploded while the bugs ate the squash, and this year the bugs ate the greens while the peppers and the tomatoes produced off the charts, and, you know, and who knows what next year is going to be. Yeah. Uh, all of which is to say that, uh, you know, here's this mental picture I have. I think growing food is less of a circle and more like an extended slinky. Oh, um, yeah, yeah, I can completely you know, get that. <laughs> uh, that's a little nerve-wracking, but I also think it's pretty energizing and mm-hmm. stimulating. Yeah, wow, cool. So what do you consider your biggest success? <laughs> well, we have a framed picture on our wall of our very first tomato. Oh. We consider that a pretty big success. <laughs> but uh, I, I think... Really, what I would, how I would answer that is, as I mentioned earlier, we love to have children uh, come and mm-hmm. visit, and and they're drawn to the chickens, of course, but they're also curious about the garden, and especially if their visit, you know, by chance coincides with some chance to pick something like oh, a yes. cherry tomato, they can just yep. pop in their mouth and explore the prairie acres. We have a little club car kind of thing that we can drive around these trails I mentioned, and mm-hmm. love to do that. And, you know, the wind's blowing in your hair and you're prowling through the prairie and stuff and well after one such visit this spring by two young girls uh, their mother later told us that on the drive home the older one who is a kindergartner I think was Uh quiet for a bit and then volunteered when I grow up I'm going to marry a farmer I don't know what we're going to grow but I know we're going to have a lot of fun Wow. And I think that, and that feels like a success to that, me. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That moved me. That was, wow. Cool. So what drives you? You know, from this kind of biblical world mm-hmm. that I've grown up in, mm-hmm. I have always found probably the most compelling and alluring image uh, to be 
from the Hebrew scriptures from the 11th chapter of Isaiah, it's often referred to as the peaceable kingdom. Uh-huh. You know, it's a, you know, the wolf shall lie down with the lamb and the leopard down with the kid and th- those kinds of images. They'll not hurt or destroy on all my mountain. I, I have always understood that to be an image, uh, uh, this anticipatory image of the disparate elements of natural life working together instead of mm. contending with each other, mm-hmm. which I would probably want to describe as a kind of gloma, global permaculture at every level. Yeah. And I, I don't know, I, I am kind of driven and animated by the prospect of living and working in the gap between the way things are and the way I think they're supposed to be. Yeah. And I like to think that my past work and my present work are sort of both in their own way, expressions of the magnetism of that vision. Wow. So I'm all about education and I have to know, is there one book that has been influential for you in this process in your life? Uh, no, but there's three. Okay, go. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, I mentioned Barbara Kingsolver's book earlier. That yep. was really very, very powerfully transformational for yeah. both of us. And along about that same time, we read Michael Pollan's In Defense of Food. Now, yes. I, I know Omnivore's Dilemma is probably way more famous and way more, you know, epical than than in defense of food, but somehow something about in defense of food really was captivating, particularly at the back end of that where he begins to outline what he later published in independent form as the food rules. One of those things that he mentions is uh, in his rules is you don't eat anything that has that lists more than five ingredients. And then, you know, most of which you can't pronounce. Exactly. and that's just, I think, very grounding and very clear. I don't have any trouble figuring out what he's talking about. Right. And so, for example, I was in the store. I, I was looking for Italian dressing a few years ago. And spontaneously, I pick up a jar of Italian dressing. And I hear Michael Pollan whispering in my ear. <laughs> and so I turned around, turned the bottle around, and I looked on the label. And I thought, holy cow. You know, there's... First of all, most of this stuff isn't necessary, and I don't even know what it is. Mm-hmm. But the things that I do recognize, I have at home. I can make this stuff myself. Right. And so, you know, I love that book, and I and I would recommend it. Uh, sort of a weird bridge uh, between my two worlds is a, a really wonderful book by a scholar named Ellen Davis. And the book is called Scripture, Culture, and Agriculture, and an agrarian reading of the Bible. And she really takes a magnifying glass, or maybe that's, I don't know if that's the image or not, but she really tries to reread Scripture with an eye for all of its agricultural insight, metaphor, uh, instruction. I mean, all this. and And it's one of those things that I guess I'm embarrassed to say. I mean, I've read this stuff. I, I, I have come across uh, agricultural, uh, agrarian images, but I never really thought about how compelling and predominant those images are. And then she turns those uh, as, a, as a way of it, thinking about mm-hmm. present agricultural practices and policies and interests and the like. And I just think it's a really superb tool to think about, think faithfully about the the land the earth how we eat mm-hmm. agriculture from that point of view excellent excellent thank you 
So what one final piece of advice do you have for our listeners? Well, you certainly don't have to give up your job and uh, move to the country. So I I would hate for somebody to hear my story and assume that that's a requirement. You probably, anybody perhaps has a deck and they can set up a PVC pipe. And Mm -hmm. uh, if you don't have that, you can, you probably have some scratch of ground that you could stick a seed in. Mm And, and I guess lastly, I would say, don't be afraid to experiment. I'm on my like fourth variety of broccoli because uh-huh. I'm determined to grow a broccoli and so far I've failed miserably. Mm. But I think it, it's, a, it's a varietal problem more than anything else. I haven't found the right one for the right spot, et cetera. And so to me, that's advice. Don't be afraid to experiment. <laughs> yeah. yeah, perfect. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the show and sharing your experience with us today, Tim. It has been a treat getting to chat with you. I have loved the conversation. Thanks for inviting me. So uh, how can our listeners get a hold of you? I have a website that is www.taprootgarden.com. Mm-hmm. And there's a contact page, Perfect. and that's probably the easiest way. Perfect. And if you want to go to urbanfarm.org, backslash taproot garden you'll find the information about the podcast and resources there as well well that's it for today thanks for joining us on the urban farm podcast thanks so much decades ago i started growing food in my front and backyard and i realized that my mission in life is to inspire and empower others to grow their own nutrient-dense healthy organic food Because of this, a lot of people have come to me with their gardening questions over the years. And that got me thinking, what if we put together a community that would help budding gardeners blossom? So I finally made the idea a reality with my Urban Farm U member program. Each month, your membership includes three live online events, a monthly class, a chit chat with an expert, and a monthly coaching session plus access to the experts on our member page and a significant discount on our signature courses. I'm deeply committed to transforming our global food system, and I do this by empowering you to grow your own food. The Urban Farm Membership Program is a simple way to get going. Please join me in transforming your food system today. To learn more, go to urbanfarmmembership.org or text MEMBERSHIP to 33444. That's urbanfarmmembership.org or text membership to 33444. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen three days a week for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. One of the first things that many of us learn when we start to garden is how to water and fertilize the soil. But there is an exception to this rule and it's called foliar feeding. You should foliar feed or water the leaves of your plant with liquid fertilizer when you want certain nutrients to be absorbed better. Not only are the leaves great at uptaking liquid fertilizer, if your soil isn't very good or your pH is off, foliar feeding can help your veggies and fruit trees quickly get the nutrients they need to thrive. If you're ready to start foliar feeding for maximum growth yields and quality, 
head on over to urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves to see our selection of foliar feeding products. That's urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves.